Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. You can open your Bibles to Job chapter 17. We are going to look at 17, 18, and 19 tonight. I am confident that we can get all three of those chapters because they are pretty self-explanatory. But we're also going to see two really interesting theological things. We're going to see one of the highlights of the book of Job... One of the things that people quote out of the book of Job, when Job is at his absolute very lowest, when his friends are continuing to just pummel him and blame him for so much, after he gets done saying that God is going to have to be his surety and his security, even as his body is wasting away, he ends up saying, I know that my Redeemer lives. That's the one thing he knows since he knows he can't depend on his friends anymore and all his family is gone and all his wealth is gone. He knows one thing. He hangs on to one thing and that hope is I know my Redeemer lives. But in chapter 17, we're going to see Job say something that theologically is just absolutely fascinating because we are sovereign grace people here. What that means is that we study Reformed theology, which goes by the nickname of Calvinism. And uh, people love this thing that we believe. People just, they, they just can't wait to flock to churches that are preaching this kind of theology. But all we're really doing is looking at what the Bible says and just saying what the Bible says. And we're going to see another example of that tonight. One of the linchpins of Reformed theology is the idea that God elects certain people and that having elected them, he then gives them the insight, the wisdom necessary to understand his word. In other words, you can't know anything about God. You can't know anything about Christ. You can't believe anything about the life to come. You can't know any of that properly without God showing you, opening your eyes, opening your heart. Jesus, when he was on the planet, repeatedly said that those who have ears were going to hear, those that had eyes were going to see. And yet he talked about those that have eyes and they don't see, and they have ears and they don't hear. So Jesus was always making a differentiation. The whole Bible makes a differentiation between those who can understand and those who can't. Now, Job has been, as I just said, pummeled by his friends. They've each taken a turn telling him how bad he is. And Job is kind of surprised by the fact that They've now come back at him yet again, even though he's answered every one of their complaints against him. And now Bildad's going to speak up. And with this constant onslaught of people saying, you must have done something terrible, you must be evil, and Bildad's just going to unload on him tonight. 
and just say, look, certain bad things happen to evil people. Those bad things are happening to you. Clearly, you're evil. And, of course, he keeps retaining his integrity. So what does he do? In the midst of his distress at his friends, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of all his loss, he's competing with his friends, and instead of saying to them, you're stupid, you just don't get it, you're a bunch of foolhardy people who don't understand anything, his theology is identical to the Reformed theology that we keep teaching. See how I brought it around? I finally got back to that point. His theology is the same as our theology because he's going to say, you, God, hid it from them. That's why they don't understand it. That's why they don't get that this is happening to me because you are sovereign. And that though I am innocent of any charge that would be bad enough to inspire you to implement all these terrible things against me, the only reason I know my innocence and they don't, the only reason I know it's your sovereignty and they don't, the only reason that I can keep saying I know my Redeemer lives and they keep saying he's not your Redeemer, you're evil, he's, he's clearly against you. The only reason that they are so dramatically opposed theologically is because, according to Job, God did not give them the ability to understand it. Now, the reason that I really stress this is that this is, once again, the oldest book in the Bible. And the oldest book in the Bible says the same thing that we believe. That if you're going to know anything, God has to teach you. And if you don't know the things of God, it's because God hid them from you. God didn't show you. So... The theology that we're teaching here, which I keep saying is a biblical theology, I keep insisting that we're just saying what the Bible says, that theology absolutely permeates the Bible from the very beginning to the very end. So let's start in Job chapter 17, verse 1. We're only going to get a couple of verses in because at verse 4, he's going to say, because you, God have kept their heart from understanding. So he knows, even in his terrible condition, even with his friends telling him how evil he must be, he knows that their lack of understanding is from God. And that is everything we believe. Have you ever spoken to anybody? That was close, huh? I almost started reading. I know you were, I know, it was really close. Have you ever told anybody something that you know from the Bible? You've just read a text to them and just said, look, it says it right here. Jesus said, everyone that the Father gives me will come to me. So who comes to him? The ones God gives him. There, that's what the Bible says. It's right there. And you'll say that to people, and they will stare at you like deer in the headlights. And they'll just go, what? what? Oh, well, then you must be a Calvinist. And we all know that Calvinists are... Ba- Servetus! You know, they have to yell. 
just freak out because once they figure out that you believe in Reformed theology, their, their brains just can't handle it. And you will say to them, but all I did was read what the Bible says. All I did was tell you what Jesus actually said, and the implications of what he said are obvious. Words are words. Words have meaning. This must be the meaning. All the Father gives me will come to me. That's just the end of it. And they'll just stare at you like, I don't get it. And then they'll do to you what Job's friends are saying here. Job's friends are going to start saying, oh, okay, you're just smarter than everybody. Oh, okay. Well, that's the same thing people do to us. Oh, okay, you're the one who knows. Okay, fine. You're, you're just smarter than everybody. Okay, fine. The reason they don't get it, and let this be an encouragement to you, the reason they don't get it is even when the word of God is presented to them, They can't see it because God just hasn't shown it to them yet. And so that helps because I used to think that I had to compete with everybody who didn't get it. I thought if I just talked more and just showed them more verses and just kept pounding on them and kept debating and kept that somehow I could talk them in to comprehending things that the Bible says God has to show you. And so the reason that the three friends are pummeling Job at this moment is because God kept their heart from understanding. Okay, there's the introduction. We've got to get reading if we're going to make three chapters tonight. But the chapters are pretty much self-explanatory. We're going to start actually in Job 16, back just a couple of verses, because that, the 17 here is just a very strange place for a chapter division. Job is talking about his life and how desperate and painful he is at this point. And so starting at verse 18, he said, O earth, do not cover up my blood, and let there be no resting place for my cry. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and my advocate is on high. My friends are scoffers. My eye weeps to God. In other words, I can't turn to my friends. So where am I going to turn? I have to go back to turning to God. Oh, that a man might plead with God as a man does with his neighbor. He wishes he could make his case before God. And he's really going to keep driving that point home now, that he wishes he could speak to God and that God could explain it to him. We have a very natural desire to make things make sense. Well, that's what Job is saying here. He wishes that he could talk to God, ask God, inquire of God, and that God would tell him something so that this would all make sense to him. So that he would say, oh, I see why you're doing this. Because so far, Job can't think of anything that would be the reason for God to bring this on him. And what he wants most is to be able to ask God the way that a man can ask his neighbor. I want to make sense out of these things. Verse 22, for when a few years are past, I shall go the way of no return. My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Surely mockers are with me. He's just identified his friends as his mockers. 
Surely mockers are with me, and my eye gazes on their provocation. Lay down now a pledge for me with thyself. He's now talking to God, and this word, this pledge, actually, literally, the Hebrew picture word, it's like somebody to join hands and come alongside and help you, somebody who would stand up in court and plead your cause for you, somebody who's going to be right there and and make a pledge to your innocence. Lay down now a pledge for me with thyself, he says to God. Who is there that will be my guarantor? For thou hast kept their heart from understanding. Therefore, thou wilt not exalt them. So a couple of weeks ago, I said at the end of what we looked at that Job had now been driven into a corner where he had nowhere to go but to God. Now that his friends are no help to him, now that it's clear that his friends are always going to say evil things against him, now he's really, truly, genuinely cornered to the point where he can only go to God. And he expects God to be his pledge, to be his guarantor, to be his advocate. Nobody else is going to speak for him, so he's relying completely on God to take his side, because no one else will. Verse 5. He who informs against friends... For a share of the spoil, the eyes of his children also shall languish. Now, that's sort of a proverb that he's speaking, but what it means is, even if my friends here, my scoffing friends, even if they knew something against me, the very fact that they're informing against me, the very fact that they're witnessing against me so that they can get a greater share of the reward with God, means that they've become enemy to me and the eyes of their children will languish. It's like a curse that he's putting on them because he's saying, you're not being honest friends. As soon as a better offer came along, you took the better offer and turned on me. He who informs against friends for a share of the spoil, the eyes of his children also shall languish. But he, God, has made me a byword of the people. That means that they speak of him out of the corners of their mouth. They speak down about him. They don't speak well about him. And I am one at whom men spit. My eye has also grown dim because of grief, and all my members are as a shadow. The upright shall be appalled at this. In other words, People who were upright, as I was upright, if they saw what I was going through, would be appalled by it, would be scared by it. If, if God is so sovereign that he's willing to do that to Job, and he's an upright man, then what is God really willing to do to his people? That's going to cause upright people to be afraid. And the innocent shall stir up himself against the godless. So... I think he's beginning to explain not only that his three friends don't have any understanding because God has kept their heart from understanding, but he's at the same time saying, if they were actually upright, which they're not because they've turned on a friend, but if they were actually upright and then they saw what was happening to me, they'd be appalled by it. So they have to make me out to be evil. 
they have to say I did something to bring this on myself and they're so afraid of it they have to blame me for it because they think they themselves are upright and if they're upright and I'm upright and God did this to me how frightening is that for them so they end up saying it must be your fault the upright shall be appalled at this and the innocent shall stir up himself against the godless nevertheless the righteous shall hold to his way in other words I'm not going to turn back I'm not going to change my mind you can tell me how evil I am all day long I'm not going to turn from my way I know that I'm standing righteous in all this and he who has clean hands shall grow stronger and stronger but come again all you now for I do not find a wise man among you I, I like the phrase but come again all you now which generally means go ahead have at it say what you're going to say it's it's sort of like the modern colloquialism come on come at me bring it on, bring it on. just bring it but come again all you now for I do not find a wise man among you. My days are past. My plans are torn apart. Certainly this wasn't Job's plan. Job was a wealthy man and had lots of kids. Life was going to go good for him. But my plans are torn apart. Even the wishes of my heart. They make night into day saying the light is near in the presence of darkness that's a colloquialism what he's basically saying here is they deny everything that's obvious to them even when it's dark they say oh it's light and even though I can say to them I am righteous and God in his sovereignty brought this about they can't see that and they say no this has to be something you did God is infinitely fair, and so he's only paying you back for something that you did, so you brought this on yourself, which is a denial of the truth, which is why he said God has kept their heart from understanding what the actual truth is here. They end up making night into day. Here I am in the night, and they keep insisting it's all going to be okay. They say the light is near in the presence of darkness, but... If I look for Sheol, the grave, as my home, if I make my bed in the darkness, if I call to the pit and say, you are my father, or to the worm and say, you're my mother and you're my sister, well, if I do all that, then verse 15, where now is my hope? My hope is in Sheol and in the pit and in the worm. That's all I've got to look forward to. This wasn't my plan for life. I had a different plan. It didn't work out. All I plan now is to die and go to the pit. That's all I can hope for. And who regards my hope? Will it go down with me to Sheol? In other words, once I'm buried, does my hope disappear with me? Shall we together go down into the dust, my hope and I? Then Bildad the Shuhite responded, now, we already know what the character of these guys is. But Job has just said some really pathetic things. And you would think that any person with half a heart would at some point show some empathy, at very least some sympathy, at very least keep your mouth shut and don't make it worse. 
Bildad the Shuhite decides to speak. How long will you hunt for words? Show understanding, and then we can talk. In other words, figure out what you're really talking about, and then we can have a conversation. Why are we regarded as beasts? This is the part where he's saying, oh, oh, you're Mr. Smart Guy. I see, we're stupid, and you're really smart. Oh, yeah, I get it. So he's being sarcastic. Why are we regarded as beasts and stupid in your eyes? Oh, you who tear yourself in your anger, for your sake, shall the earth be abandoned or the rock be moved from its place? In other words, oh, are you so important now, Mr. Important Guy, Mr. Smart Guy, that you're going to cause earthquakes and the earth itself is going to be abandoned because of you, Mr. Know-it-all? Now he's going to, the next several verses are just him saying, this is what happens to the wicked. It's happening to you. Therefore, you're wicked. Job has just said, I'm righteous. I didn't sin against God. He's going to argue now, you're clearly wicked. Indeed, the light of the wicked goes out. And the flame of his fire gives no light. The light in his tent is darkened. And his lamp goes out above him. Okay, now you have to kind of recognize that as a follow-up to what Job has just said. He has just said, back in verse 13 of the previous chapter, that his only hope is to look for the grave, look for darkness, look for the pit. And now Bildad has said, yeah, right, the light in his tent is darkened. The light of the wicked goes out. The flame of the fire gives no light. Yeah, of course you're going to be extinguished. You're wicked. And that's what happens to wicked people. So the very fact that you're saying you're looking forward to the grave means you're wicked. Verse 7, his vigorous stride is shortened and his own schemes bring him down. For he is thrown into the net by his own feet and he steps into the webbing. Uh, All that means is a net laid on the ground, cover it with some grass or whatever so you don't see it. By his own stride, by his own walking, he's going to end up stumbling into that net and he's going to get caught in his own net. It's just another way of saying what's happening to you is a result of your own actions, is a result of your own work. You're caught in your own net. And you step into the webbing, and a snare seizes him by the heel, and a trap snaps shut on him. A noose for him is hidden in the ground, and a trap for him on the path. All around, terrors frighten him, and harry him at every step. In other words, evil people are frightened all the time, and you just said you're frightened. Well, that just proves you're evil. His strength is famished, and calamity is ready at his side. His skin is devoured by disease, and the firstborn of death devours his limbs. Okay, so what's Job's state right now? We've already seen him described as sitting on an ash heap, covered in boils, bleeding, taking the piece of broken pottery and carving away at his own skin. So what is Bildad saying? He's saying, look at you. Evil people look like you. The skin of an evil man is devoured by disease. You're devoured by disease. That means you're evil. 
the firstborn of death devours his limbs. Well, that's exactly what's happening to Job. He is torn from the security of his tent, and they march him before the king of terrors. There dwells in his tent nothing of his. His household has just been destroyed. And here's Bildad saying, well, that's what happens to evil people. There dwells in his tent nothing of his. It all gets wrecked. Everything you had got wrecked, so you must be evil. (laughs) Brimstone is scattered on his habitation. His roots are dried below and his branch is cut off. In other words, you're just a dead shrub or a dead tree. Memory of him perishes from the earth and he has no name abroad. Remember that Job just said, we just read it, that, that he hopes the earth does not cover up his blood and that there's no resting place for his cry that there's some kind of witness in heaven to what he's been through. In fact, in a moment, Job says, I wish what I was going through was written down so that it could be read later by people. Well, fortunately for us, it turns out it was. But here Bildad is saying to him, when evil people die, nobody remembers. Memory of him perishes from the earth, and he has no name abroad. He is driven from light into darkness. And chased from the inhabited world. You just got done saying your only hope is the grave. Well, that's what's going to happen to you. You're going to be chased into the grave because you're evil. He has no offspring or posterity among his people. How cruel is that? His children are all dead. And now he's saying among evil people, They don't have any posterity on the earth. And you have no posterity, therefore you're evil. He has no offspring or posterity among the people, nor any survivor where he sojourned. In other words, no offspring where he lived. Those in the West are appalled at his fate. A minute ago, Job said, the righteous are appalled at what I'm going through. Now he's turned it around on him and said, we're appalled at your fate. We're put off by how sick you are, but you deserve it. We're appalled at your fate. And those in the east are seized with horror. So those in the west are appalled at your fate. Those in the east are seized with horror. And surely such are the dwellings of the wicked. In other words, the very fact that everybody is appalled at you that everybody looks on you with horror is just proof that you're wicked. Surely such things are the dwellings of the wicked. And since it's happening to you, that means you're wicked. And this is the place of him who does not know God. Okay, so Job has just said about his three friends that they don't understand because God has not given them a heart to understand. To which Bildad responds, You're someone who doesn't know God. So they're just arguing back and forth the way people do on Facebook these days. Yeah, well, you don't agree with me, so you're a heretic. Yeah, well, you don't see things the way I do, so you don't know God. So now Job is going to respond to the insult. Chapter 19, then Job responded, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? 
these 10 times you have insulted me. Uh, that doesn't mean literally 10 times. It's a Jewish idiomatic phrase that means several times. You just keep doing it. You keep doing it. You keep doing it. These 10 times you have insulted me and you are not ashamed to wrong me. Which, again, is the very essence of what it is to be a liar, to be an unsympathetic liar. A real liar, like a psychopathic liar, isn't even ashamed to tell his lies, even when he knows they're lies. If it will gain him some advantage, he'll tell those lies. And that's what Job's getting at. You crush me with your words, and you keep insulting me, and you're not even ashamed to wrong me. What is wrong with you? Even if, okay, let's think this through logically. Verse 4, even if I have truly erred, my error lodges with me. In other words, if I've done something wrong, then I'm the one that's going to pay for it. It lives with me. It lodges with me. I have to deal with it or repent of it. Why do you keep heaping insult on my injury? I'm already injured enough. And even if I have truly erred, that error lodges with me. If indeed you vaunt yourselves against me and prove my disgrace to me, know then that God has wronged me and has closed his net around me. Behold, I cry violence, but I get no answer. I shout for help, but there is no justice. He, God, has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has put darkness on my paths. He has stripped my honor from me, he has removed the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. And he has uprooted my hope like a tree. He has also kindled his anger against me and considered me as his enemy. His troops come together, and they build up their way against me, and they camp around my tent. And he has removed my brothers, my friends, the ones I was counting on. He has removed my brothers far from me. And my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. You guys were supposed to be my friends. You were supposed to build me up. You were supposed to give me some empathy. You're supposed to help me through all this. And yet, the very fact that they are continuing to tell him how wrong and evil he is, Job just cannot escape the idea of God's absolute sovereignty. Notice that he did not say, you three have removed yourself from me. You have estranged yourself from me. Look at what he says. Since it is God that has hardened their hearts so that they can't understand the truth, he then says it is God who has removed my brothers far away from me. And my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. It's God that's doing all of this. The fact that they can't understand. The fact that I have nobody I can go to except him. The fact that the only one that I can possibly expect to plead my cause or stand for me or give me the right hand to fellowship. It's God and God alone because God alone in his sovereignty made sure I can't go to anybody else. That's absolute sovereignty. 
He has removed my brothers far from me. And my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed. And my intimate friends have forgotten me. By the way, have you ever felt that way? I see a couple heads nodding. We have reached that point of thinking, man, my relatives, my family, they're no help. The people who used to be my intimate friends have now forgotten me. And my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. And even my brethren are far from me. I think it's good to take this lesson from Job. Because he recognizes that God did that. The same way that we have said through the years and is proven here in Job. The same way that we know that the hardships of this life, the suffering of this life, is always in the hands of an absolutely sovereign God. Well, then part of that can be that he can remove everybody else in your life. All the people you were counting on, all the people you thought would definitely give you the love and support and affection that you deserve, or at least they would help you through the hard times. If they don't, if they're not there, that's still in the hands of an absolutely sovereign God. And if you know that, if you remember that, if you hold on to that, it will make it easier to go back to where you ought to be, which is, okay, I can't count on anybody. I have to trust God. I have to believe that God will be my advocate no matter what happens, even if he removes everybody in my life I thought I could count on. My relatives have failed. My intimate friends have forgotten me. Those who live in my house and my maids consider me a stranger. I am a foreigner in their sight. I call to my servant, but he doesn't answer me. I have to beg him. I have to implore him with my mouth to get him to do anything anymore. Because after all, he has no more money. He's got no more wealth. He's got no more power. And even when he speaks to the person who's his servant, who's supposed to always do what his master's bidding is, he even has to beg that one to do something for him. That's how low he's become. Verse 17, my breath is offensive to my wife. I don't know if he's speaking of his actual halitosis at that moment, although with all the disease that's in his body, it could be really offensive. But I also just think he's saying the very fact that I'm still breathing offends my own wife. She's the one that was supposed to stick by me. Okay, my family, my friends, okay, everybody else has forgotten me, my brothers. But even my own wife now finds my breath offensive, and I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even young children despise me. I rise up and they speak against me. All my associates abhor me, and those I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and my flesh, and I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Don't tell me the Bible's not relevant. I heard that phrase just this week on the news where somebody said they just got away by the skin of their teeth. That comes straight out of Job. That's God language. That's Bible language. And yet it's become part of our modern lexicon. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. By the way, how much skin do any of you have on your teeth? Zero. Yeah, not a whole lot. Not a lot of skin going on there. 
So clearly he means by the very narrowest of margins. I just barely, barely have escaped at this point. Verse 21, pity me. Pity me, oh, my friends. That's what he's crying to them. Don't heap your guilt on me. Don't tell me how evil I am and how terrible I am. Have pity on me, my friends. For the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God? Now, the NASB throws in the word does there in parenthesis. Well, in italics. It's not actually in the text. And I don't think that word God there is supposed to be capitalized. Why do you persecute me as if you're God, I think is what he's saying. Why do you keep handing down judgment as if you know, when in fact you don't know anything? Why do you persecute me as God? And you are not satisfied with my flesh. My flesh is barely clinging to my bones. I'm hanging on the edge of death. I'm just escaping by the skin of my teeth. You should be pitying me, and yet you persecute me as if your deity itself. Why aren't you satisfied with the fact that my flesh is ruined? My life is ruined. My hopes are ruined. All I can look forward to is the grave. And you keep piling on when you should be pitying me. Verse 23, this is what I mentioned earlier as one of the highlights of Job. And I'm really trying to stress how pitiful he is at this moment. He's at the very end of himself. He's just barely clinging at this point, barely carrying on. And yet, in this moment of astounding faith, instead of looking to his friends and his brethren and his family and his wife and all human beings across the board... He turns his eyes to God and he says, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book that with an iron stylus and with lead, they were written down so that they were engraved in the rock forever. And what is it that he wants written down? What does he want ascribed? Oh, that my words were written down. What does he want written down, engraved in rock so it would last forever? Verse 25, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. Fascinating theology. Because I keep stressing, oldest book in the Bible. And yet he knows, he believes that the one who's going to redeem him out of the state he's in exists in heaven. The one who is his advocate in heaven is also his redeemer. Is this starting to sound really familiar? Very New Testament-y? As for me, I know that my redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. He got all eschatological. At the, in this state, in this state of sickness, in this state of being abandoned by all his friends, in the oldest book in the Bible, he predicts that someday his Redeemer is going to walk on the earth. And he says, I know it. I know that. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. 
Even after my skin is destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Well, of course, there's commentator after commentator who talks about those things. Was he talking about resurrection? Was he saying, though I know that my flesh is going to be completely destroyed, still I'm going to stand in my flesh and I'm going to see God? Or was he saying that he was going to see God when he left his flesh? The NASB doesn't say in my flesh. It says from my flesh because the actual verbal tense right there isn't real clear in the Hebrew. Whether the word means in my flesh or from my flesh or apart from my flesh. The King James says in my flesh. The greatest amount of evidence so far seems to be that he is saying that as a result of his flesh, he's going to see God. So whether that means resurrection or whether that means he's going to, because he lived in the flesh, he's going to see God, one of those two things is true of what Job is saying here. The combination of I know my Redeemer lives, he's going to stand on the earth, and though my skin is destroyed, yet in or from my flesh I will see God, It's one of the strongest theological statements you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. That kind of sums up the whole rest of the Bible. My Redeemer lives. My Redeemer lives in heaven. And I know it. Okay, well, there's faith. There's faith in a Redeemer. And I know the Redeemer exists. And he's going to stand on the earth in the last day. Okay, whether that's talking about the first incarnation of Christ or the ultimate return of Christ to set up his kingdom and rule from Jerusalem for a thousand years, regardless of which of those he's referring to, part of what he knows is in the last day, in the last time, at the last, he is going to take his stand on the earth. And even though my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I'm going to see God. If you know nothing else or walk out of here tonight with nothing else, that statement from Job right there is enough to get your theology a good grounding. If you start at the Redeemer lives, I have faith in him. I know that he lives. I know that he's going to be on the planet or has been and will be again. And I know that even though my flesh, my skin is destroyed still, I'm going to see God. That's kind of as much as you need to know to get started. Whom, verse 27, my God, whom I myself shall behold, and my eyes shall see him and not another. By the way, this language of my skin is destroyed, and yet I'm going to see him with my eyes is one of the reasons that I tend to agree with the interpretation of Even though my skin is destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Because he's still talking about fleshly portions of his body, like his eyes. My eyes are going to see him, and my heart faints within me. Whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes shall see, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how shall we persecute him? And what pretext for a case against him can we find? This is what his three friends have been doing. They've been saying, how are we going to persecute Job? What pretext can we come up with for some kind of case against him? If you say that, then be afraid of the sword for yourselves. 
for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, so that you may know that there is judgment. So big picture. Yes, I'm really ailing here. You think it's because I'm evil. I say it's because God has hidden the truth from your heart so that you can't understand. Here's what I do know, even though my friends, my family, everybody I've trusted, even my own wife, even though they all abhor me and have abandoned me, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know I have an advocate in heaven. And if you're going to continue in this way of trying to find some pretext in order to continue condemning me, look out, because judgment's coming. And God is going to judge the just and the wicked. And you don't want to be found on the wicked side. But wrath brings punishment of a sword so that you may know that there is judgment. So then we're going to get to the end of the book of Job eventually. God's going to show up and God's going to say that his wrath is kindled. In other words, that that judgment character of God is revved up against Job's three friends because they just didn't say what was right about God. So Job's warning here to them is a valid warning. When he says to them, now be careful. If you continue accusing me and trying to find some pretext for judging me, then just know that judgment's coming. And for them it is. And then in astounding mercy and grace, God allows that Job can make a sacrifice for the three friends to abate the anger of God so that God doesn't pour out his anger on them. In other words, the very one that they've been judging, that they've been looking for pretext to hate on, is the very one who has to stand as a mediator between them and the wrath of God. The very one that they're trying to to say, you're evil, is the one that God's going to say, yeah, but he better pray for you. And if if he doesn't, my wrath is going to spill out on you. So there's these great ironies in the book of Job, and I just don't want you to miss them. But I love that section of Job 19 when he finally says, despite all this, I know my Redeemer lives. Because you're going to go through stuff in this life. If you haven't gone through it yet, live a little longer. Because trouble just comes with this life. And when you go through that kind of trouble and you think, where can I go? Who can I turn to? Who's going to help me? Just keep a hold of that statement. I know that I have an advocate in heaven. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that he's going to walk here on the planet. I know that I, with my own eyes, I'm going to see him. And judgment's real. That's a bunch of solid theology right there from the lips of Job. And if if nothing else, it's consistent with the rest of the Bible. Yes, absolutely. So that's to lean towards says it over and over and over again God reveals himself and God hides himself and God tells people the truth and God makes sure that some people never hear the truth the verse in 1 Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians where Paul says speaking of the Antichrist to come and says that that God is going to turn men over to a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie and be condemned. I mean, God is active in making sure that those that belong to him come to him. All that the Father gives me will come to me. But he's also active in making sure that the people who aren't supposed to hear it don't ever get it. So our job is to just tell the truth 
and leave the judging stuff up to God. All right, anything else? Any other questions? So say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.